Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. And we recently realized it's hard to assess a politician who has virtually no political record. But with Donald Trump, we tried anyway. And we wound up with stories and lessons from the record he does have in business and on TV. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Linda. Stephen, do you know what will make a person feel self-conscious? What's that? Interviewing Tom Hanks about the short story collection he wrote, particularly when it includes a story about an actor going through a terrible, punishing press junket. (laughs) And that, of course, is uh, where he has to be interviewed all the time. Mm -hmm. So here's how that went. It's really intimidating to do this right after reading that story about the... Press well, let me let me tell you something. When we were when we were going through this with a with a crack staff over at Random House, they were saying, well, "We hate to ask you, but you know your schedule is already pretty heavy promoting the book." And I spit take with coffee, heavy schedule. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what a heavy schedule. We were in Japan. They begged us, please, can you just, can we just add one show to this schedule? We know it's heavy, but there is a show. It is the most watched show at four in the afternoon. It has a huge Japanese. They all go to the movies. Please, can you do this? I said, well, if it works, yeah, well, I'll do it. Well, the problem is it's about a 40-minute drive, too, and it'll be in traffic. So, da, da. so we worked on this whole thing, mm-hmm. all this negotiation going to do the biggest TV show at four in the afternoon in Japan, and I was on TV with a guy in a rubber shrimp costume. <laughs> he was a big shrimp, but you know he's that a moved back and forth through the through the TV frame as I was talking to. He's a popular shrimp. Uh, it was well, well, I can understand. I said, "Well, you didn't tell me about the guy in the rubber shrimp costume." <laughs> if, I, the, if you had, you would have driven I, I, fifty I, I would have said, that. "Why is this not on the schedule to begin with?" <laughs> So Tom Hanks and I had a long talk, not just about the guy in the rubber shrimp costume, but also about Nora Ephron and writing and the cosmos and about that new short story collection, which is called Uncommon Type. And he told me something genuinely amazing about David S. Pumpkins. I can't wait for you to hear it. So stick around. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Brooklinen. They make luxury sheets at non-luxury prices. By cutting out the middleman, they bypass costs and pass the savings on to you. With Brooklinen, they offer two different types of weaves. Buttery Soft Luxe, soft, smooth, and perfect for year-round comfort. Or Crisp and Cool Classic, lightweight and breathable. Mix and match your way to bed perfection. Shop now at brooklinen.com and use code HAPPYHOUR to get $20 off plus free shipping. Tom Hanks, welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Lovely to be here. Um, I want to ask you about the dedication of the book, which says, for Rita and all the kids, Mm -hmm. and it says, because of Nora. Talk to me about that. Well, Nora's Nora Ephron, who, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I was I was a fan of Nora only by way of the great legend that was that's Nora. The first time I I met her was I'm trying to go through my my nomenclature. Actually, we, we met very briefly in a in a building in New York where we were staying uh, while I was making a movie, and she lived there. We said howdy do. Then I knew that she was the great Nora of Heartburn, and I was aware of uh, an awful lot of of what she had done. And when it came time to do Sleepless in Seattle, I'd seen her first movie which I thought was fabulous in its authenticity. 
and so when I when I first met her, I was persnickety movie star that was being offered a role in somebody's second movie, and <clears throat> I had ideas for the script, and they were re- it was going to be rewritten, and I had this suggestion, and I had this problem, and. We were sitting around for an awful long time, and uh, I, I, I think I drove her and her sister Delia nuts because I would just think, why is this and this? How can you doing it like this? You guys are ladies, and you're trying to write about a man. A man doesn't go through this. A guy who's a father doesn't have this conversation with his son. And eventually, she and Delia said, well, what would a father do in this circumstance? So I'll tell you what he'd do, and I'd rattle off a bunch of stuff. And there was a couple of things that made it into the movie that came from those meetings. When the film came out, there was a couple of sequences, and one one was about you know how a person falls in love, and I said yeah, that came out really great. And Nora said, "Well, you wrote that." I said, "No, I didn't write that." I said, "No, you wrote that." I said, "We were just sitting in a note section. I was complaining, and I rattled off some stuff." And she looked at me and she said, "That's what writing is." <laughs> She's done this with an awful lot of writers. I mean, young people. I mean, I, you could probably do a, a long list of the people that Nora reached out to or commented with or chatted with and helped turn into, uh, turn looked at their stuff. And I started, I wrote some things for newspaper articles and whatnot, and I'd always send it to, uh, to Nora, and she would, she would respond instantaneously. Sometimes it was, is this a thing? Have I written something here? It says, yes, you've written an essay. You should send it to the New York Times, but for the style section. Not the Sunday, the Thursday style. So I'd follow that through, but she would also then go through it and she would point out, you know, things like an editor would do. But she would also, there's one time she sent me back this thing and it just had four words on it. Voice, 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 voice. I understand what you're saying, but I don't get how you're saying it. What is your voice? Ever since then, and in in the work that she and I did together and uh, the work that we both did, we were always... We'd always compare. We'd start with it from a perspective of the writing. And so I would say just Nora was the person who said, you have written, whether you know it or not. And so therefore, it's because of Nora that this book came around. Yeah. Did you always want to write prose fiction? Is that a long? No, no. Just picked it up sort of recently? First of all, I read mostly nonfiction because uh, when I, sometimes when I'm reading fiction, I said, ah, they just made this up, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm dissatisfied. There's plenty of fiction that is kind of like rooted in history or, or, or fact, and I read that. But it's, the writing I've done has always been connected mostly to, you know, motion pictures. Yeah. When, down at the office, we are always talking about stories. We're always trying to figure out what the best media is for it. Is it a, is it a show? Is it a miniseries? Is it a, is it a movie? And I've written screenplays, written on-screen plays, and, and uh, revised stuff that was done for HBO. But that's, that's a different brand of of writing than a short story is. I, I don't know how I got roped into this. I, I, I had this idea, and I kind of like mapped it out and wrote it up, and, yeah. uh, and somebody said, you want to do some more. What do you find that you like about short story writing? I like the specificness of the beginning, middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like this. I, I, we have this saying down around the office about a, a project. It's like every full-length story has to be like a deck of 52 cards. It has to have 52 cards in it. If, if it only has seven or if it's missing two, you're not done. You have to go off and find the three of clubs and, uh, and the eight of hearts. Short stories are, are like a really great hand of cards. <laughs> you know, there's this anticipation of what it's going to be. There's reality of what it is. Do you draw? Do you pass? No matter what game you're playing, poker or oh hell or hearts or something like that. 
I like the I like both the uh, the understanding of those requirements and then the one damn thing after another that it requires in order to fill it fill it out. Yeah. There are themes in the stories that in some ways are similar to stuff that you've done in film. There is some space in it. Yeah. Oh, there yeah. is some yeah. war in it. Yes, that's right. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The space story, the moon story, without giving too much away about it, is a very unusual moon story. Well, yeah, because it's, it's impossible for it to happen. Uh-huh. About a bunch of people who'd say, hey, let's let's build a rocket and go to the moon. And they yeah. do. Yeah. What, what fascinates you about the idea of people just up and going to the moon? Well, that really it comes right out of everything that drove me in order to make an awful lot of the movies that I did, Apollo 13 and From the Earth to the Moon that we did for HBO, all came from this this concept of the romance of what that was. When <clears throat> going to the moon for an entire generation of, of people on the planet Earth mm-hmm. was a very specific goal that was going to define all of humanity, not just not just the Soviets versus America. When when humankind was going to figure out how to fly all the way up there and then come back, we would have achieved this evolutionary place as a species. That means that's how smart we were, and that's how powerful our imaginations were. That's a demonstration of what our wherewithal was, all the choices that would go into that. Whether we got anything great, whether they discovered gold up there or little green men, it wasn't going to matter. What was going to mean it is that there was a period of all of human history where no one had been able to get more than a, a few few hundred miles up into uh, you know, a lifeless void. But when that happened, we were going to be a whole new type of uh, creature in the cosmos. We were capable of doing that. I think that's a pretty cool thing. And when I was, when I was young and very impressionable, that was happening before our very eyes. There is a photograph that was taken by uh, Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot on Apollo 11, meaning that he did not walk on the moon. He was always in orbit above it. And Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had taken off from their day on the moon, and they were coming back. And there was a photograph of their spacecraft with two men in it. And in the background is the planet Earth. As soon as I saw it, I I thought that was probably the most unique photograph in the world ever taken because the only person not in the photograph is the man who took it. Wow. So that's an example of the cosmic kind of like brain, cranial plate shifts I had growing up and still do about this idea of going to a place where the wind never blows. It's not an ounce of water. And uh, if it's you're in the sun, you're, uh, the temperature is about 250 degrees centigrade. And if you're in the shadow, it's about minus 250 degrees mm-hmm. centigrade. And the idea of just the, the glory that it would be and just in order to get up there so close that you can see it in detail to me was just one of the coolest. I mean, I would I try to do that myself it was, if it was a, an opportunity. So I manufactured it on, in a story. Yeah. And, and off it went. I wonder whether there's anything now that has that kind of cultural optimism. The answer is no. To it. Yeah. Here's an example of where the most impossible thing was was doable. You know, for yeah, a million years, no one thought you could ever actually get up there. And dang, we figured out how to do it. And you know, it's crazy, crazy ass dangerous, ridiculously expensive. The payback was some rocks, but that's the physical payback of it. The emotional and the, and the psychological and the ephemeral quality of it was I talked to the last man to actually stand on the moon, Gene Cernan. I talked to him because I wrote one of the episodes of From the Earth to the Moon, and it was, it was the last one. It was the Apollo 17 issue. And I said, uh, 
I said, Gene, you guys were always so busy up there. They were. They were busy. They were doing something every time. Did you ever take a time just to say, shut up? I want to. I just. Oh, Tom. Every time. Every time. Every time I had a chance, I, I just looked up in the sky and saw the entire time space continuum. <laughs> well. And I said, how would you define the time space continuum? He said, Tom, I could look up at the Earth that was no bigger than my thumbnail. Swear, you know, no bigger than the a bottle cap. And they said, I could see that it was it was like, you know, bedtime in London and lunchtime in Houston. So there's time. And as far as the continuum, I could just shift a few degrees and see indefinitely into the cosmos as far as a beam of light would travel. So there's your time-space continuum. And that was a guy whose job it was to make sure he took a picture of different things and, you know, got to this landing site and did this experiment and all this stuff at the same time. So mm-hmm. to me, that's just about as glamorous as you can get. And the unfortunate thing is, you know, there's no no women have gone up there. No person of color has gone up there because the interest to go up there has just changed. And to get back to the subject that I'm sort of like pontificating on, is there a, a goal that humanity is striving in order to reach with some sort of consensus of its importance? And outside of, you know, there's diseases to cure and there's things to fix and there's damage to stop. And I'm sure there's concepts to be developed and built, but I, I don't know if self-driving cars or uh, artificial intelligent uh, labor-saving devices are going to ha- have the same impact of human eyes looking into the time-space continuum whenever they wanted to. There are several of these stories that seem to touch on children learning about inner lives of parents. Oh, yeah. Is that something that is familiar to you, either with your own parents or with your own kids? I don't know how you have kids and not understand that they all see you in different ways. And as they grow older, as I grow older as well, I said, oh, I know now. My, my, my parents were just trying to figure out one damn thing after mm-hmm. another. You know, that, yeah. that's true. Yeah. There's a time when you can invest and the investment is really important. But there's a moment when that, that bill comes due and off they go. And the only thing you can really do is stay in sort of like constant mm-hmm. contact and support for what your kids are going through. And it comes along right about the time they figure out the same thing about me as I figured out about my parents yeah. is that, you know, they were wrestling with stuff that I had no idea of. And that's just the way it is. It's, there's not a negative aspect to it. Yeah. I was thinking probably two or three days ago about the fact that when my mother was the age that I am now, I considered her to be a very settled, completed person. Mm -hmm. And I don't consider myself to be that at all. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) at the time, I thought, she's got her career. She's got her family. She's sort of a, she's a completed work, Mm -hmm. you know, when she was the same age that I am now. But what was she thinking and what was she listening to in the car when she was by herself on a long drive? I haven't a clue. Yeah. What were her daydreams, you know? Yeah, I haven't a clue. What was, what was she pondering? Yeah. Was she thinking about you every single step in the minute, the moment, or what they were going to have? No. I'm going to guess that all of our parents were just going through a, a long, long list of dreams and regrets and possibilities. Yeah. And missed opportunities, as well as no small amount of counting blessings. Well, speaking of kind of not being a completed work, you know, writing fiction is a new thing for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Writing it down on paper is. Writing it in a different way, although, as you said, you've done screenwriting and things like that, which is all story creation. Yeah, that's like like designing blueprints for something and and trying to capture in a screenplay, you're trying to write something down that the art department will understand. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and the right. production designer will will read and say, oh, I know what kind of wallpaper to put in this room based on what the screenwriter has written. Right. As an actor, what I have 
figured out was one of my responsibilities. There's three things an actor has to do. He's got to show up on time because time is absolutely everything mm-hmm. when you have a job. Mm-hmm. You have to be familiar with the entire text, not just your part. You've got to know some other stuff that's, that's going on there so you know where you are in the zeitgeist of the piece. And you have to have a creative idea of what to do. I mean, that's all just yours. What you have to do in order to prepare for that first time you show up and showing up on time is to have uh, an explanation for in your own head for everything that character does and mm-hmm. an option for every uh, undiscovered moment in the piece. Uh, and that means you carry with you this backstory. They call it backstory. Uh, but actually, it's the life story of who you're playing. And you don't have to share it with anybody. You don't have to explain it to anybody. You don't even have to say, well, you know what I'm going to do here is because when this kid was seven years old, you know, he read the newspaper about the bombing atomic bomb or something like that. You don't have to do any of that. You just have to make it manifest in that moment. That is the work that goes into writing these stories, but except you got to write them down. <laughs> so you got to write down that backstory and you have to do it with some degree of... Uh, craftsmanship in the in the paragraphs and the sentence because you've already been successful at what you you at the other things that you've done did you ever worry that it would be hard to get honest feedback about the writing no i have a team of crack advisors that either say nothing this is the question of dailies you know you know what dailies are i do rushes you shoot for a day you shoot on tuesday and everybody sees it on wednesday at lunch usually so if you ask somebody, how are dailies? And they say this, they were sensational. They were fantastic. They're the best dailies I've ever seen. I don't trust that person because they're dailies. And if they also say, oh, they were, it was disastrous. Well, were they out of focus? No, they were in focus. It, was there a scratch on the name? No, it was a scratch. It just, it just didn't work. It was a lousy scene. We didn't get the coverage. La, 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 la. What they have to say after dailies, if they see them, you say, so how are dailies? They say, I don't know, pretty good. You know, hope it'll cut together, hope it'll work. And when you hand somebody over your short stories to read, say, so tell me what you think. And if they just come back and say, oh, it's pretty good. You know, I like the one about the, uh, I like the one about the uh, the veteran. And uh, I thought the World's Fair one was kind of nice. That was good. As long as you get that, it's great. All right. Did they hold your interest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I made it through. That's all you're looking for. Yeah. And I, you know, I have a couple of people that just say, uh, you're missing something here. Yeah. In the drafting of it all. And I had a great editor who was just a champ about it. But I, I have an advantage because as an actor, I go in on a movie and I, I do the thing that they hired me to do. And then someone else really does impact that performance in a big way. The hair and makeup people help shape it. The costume people do a magnificent the, the thing that really alters your body. But then the cinematographer and the editor, they make all these artistic decisions that funnel your performance, your place, and into a very specific place. So I had no problems with handing my stuff over and having someone say, ah, you're missing something here and you need more there. Fine. I, they would say, of course, this is yours. It can be whatever you want. I don't, I don't think I had more than a couple of places where I said, no, nah, I like it like that more than that. I was I'm malleable in listening to it because I want it to be 
some degree of a transcendent experience for the people who are reeling. I don't want them to read, oh, Tom wrote this story, and so this is Tom's way. I want them to say, oh, yeah, no, I really, I went to the place where you went in this story, and that's that's the highest praise you could ask for. Yeah. So the the common theme that runs through these stories uh, Please is, tell me what it is so it, I can have the answer to the rest of the interview. Well, I, I don't know if you know, but it's typewriters. Ah! And, um, you know, thus the name of the book. And I think your thing with typewriters is for people who follow you closely, a known thing, your, yeah, yes. your typewriter fandom, as we were talking about fandoms. Yeah, yes. And in the st- some of the stories have a large role for a typewriter. Some of them it's kind of a cameo. How do you know when you have a typewriter that you really love? It becomes an extension of your brain by way of your arms and, and fingers. There are some typewriters that have really stiff action, like guitar strings that are too hard or piano keys that you can't press or snow skis that just don't make the turns the way you want them to. Mm-hmm. And there's other typewriters that as soon as you start, as soon as you set the margins, and hopefully it's easy to do that, and uh, everything works, and the space bar doesn't skip, it is as fast as you think the word it appears on the page. And it's struck. Not doesn't just appear, it's struck. A key goes down, a hammer comes up, the ribbon carriage comes up, and it's stamped into the paper, and suddenly there you have a word in front of you, and the word is, is beauty, or, or uh, the word is uh, outrage. And there it is. You thought it and, it, and it appeared to you. There's some typewriters that are just so, so crazy fast, you don't even think about it. I must say, the tactile percussion of typing, communicating in a rhythm that is a sound that you hear, the sound of the keys is is equal, not equal to the scritch, scritch, scritch of a fountain pen on paper. It's different from a little, little, you know, that a laptop or an mm-hmm. electronic keyboard has. Mm-hmm. It's not only rewarding, but it makes me feel secure in order to hear that being rattled off. Yeah. Now, I don't type, I type mostly notes and letters that mm-hmm. aren't much more than a page and a half long. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't do heavy-duty work in it. I, uh, no way. I only I like type maybe four or five pages of one of the stories of this on a typewriter, uh, and it's maddening to do so. But when you want to make a connection to somebody, and it's by way of this piece of paper that is about as permanent as something carved in wood, you know, if you don't throw it away, there is an odd investment that goes into the fact that you that you have this machine that is built to do one thing and one thing only. Mm-hmm. Where it's like you're wearing a shirt made out of threads that you put through the loom yourself in order in order to make it. It is a really. It reminds me of how some people still like a Polaroid camera that mm-hmm. makes a a real thing. Mm-hmm. But Polaroid camera makes only one version of what you've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go get copies made yeah, of it, but can... that one. I mean, this literally. It's it's a it's a moment captured in time. Not to get too hipster on us because we're on we're on a podcast, the home of all hipsters. Sure. But there is a type of record that they made that they stopped making which was literally a capture of a time machine. You know, a a groove on a piece of vinyl was actually recorded live and mixed live and, you know, maybe augmented, but by and large, like, you know, some of those old 78s and and plenty of other records are literally what happened in a recording studio Mm -hmm. for the three minutes that they recorded that song. That is a tactile thing that when I think about it, it blows my mind. Mm -hmm. What is left on your list of things that you... Aspire to I've do. never kept a list of things to aspire to. Yeah, I just, 
you know, the communists did that. You know, they had five-year plans. They had, you know. Gotcha. This year, we will grow six billion gross of potatoes. I've, ne- I've never operated that way. Uh, it's a come see, come saw. It's a, it's a serendipity thing. You just kind of, like, wander around. Uh, look, I blame, you know, some version of the classic American attention deficit disorder. I'm used to a commercial coming up about every 12 minutes in life uh, that just takes you out of the out of the picture and gives you a little distraction and then brings you back in. All of these stories came out because of, of, of one that I that I wrote that I could see pretty clearly and the rest of them come along. But I, I have no, I got no wish list. I got no bucket list. That ends up being that kind of question of what's the value of to-do lists? To-do lists is to get stuff done. You know, I got to pay my taxes. I got to go to the dentist. You mm-hmm. know, that that's one brand of to-do list. But I don't know. I'll you know I'll be interested in something, and it will get me there. Does that make me like a laggard or something like that? No, I don't think so at all. I think actually the better way to ask it is like, what's going on in movies right now that you think is great? Like that's sort of what I mean. Like, what's the? Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what does it seem like? Well, that's great. That would be a cool thing to do or to produce or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, what excites you in Hollywood right now? That's a good question. The whole damn picture does. I'll tell you that. I mean, look, we are, we're in a, I'm going to pontificate. Go. Are you ready to that? That's, go. Hold on. Let me, uh, let me. I said bucket list. You got to go. We are in, I think, year 12 of the most savage change in the, <laughs> in the motion picture industry. The only thing that, that has not gone away and is an absolute constant and will forever be is an audience that wants to be surprised. There will never not be. Uh, uh, an audience that doesn't want to pay to be entertained in a brand new way by seeing something they did not expect. The truth is, from a business perspective, it's all up in the air. I mean, you know, there's movies that that will never, ever be made. And just 15 years ago, they would have been made because there was an economic model that supported it being done. But people stopped buying and renting video discs. And so that's gone now. But everybody has pretty much a pretty great TV in their room mm-hmm. with a pretty good sound system. And all around the world, people have some version of that, and particularly us. So that means they have the, uh, they have the screens. The business aspects of the delivery system is completely up in the air. And there's fortunes to be made and massive fortunes to be lost. What still is a requirement and still drives, I think, filmmakers, and I'll throw myself in the lump of that, is sitting around an office say, how do we do that in a brand new way? What's uh-huh. the story that has not been told there? And are we cutting corners and are we, are we cheapening the experience? Uh-huh. There are 8 billion options for filmed entertainment. And let's just say one out of every 26 is truly unique. One out of every 26 is truly unique. Well, that gives you, I'm going to say, three million truly unique right. opportunities to be, to be entertained. Mm-hmm. You just have to find them. And whether or not they land in the, the popular zeitgeist or not, you have to leave that up to the great goddess of film, Pelicula. She is a, she's a cruel goddess. But uh, when, when Pelicula smiles upon you, it means that more than, more than 100 people are seeing your, uh, your story. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a lot of times it's stuff like Get Out that hits with people where who would have been like, look at that. That's what, you know what I mean? Like look who from a business perspective? And for, for every Get Out, 
there's 12 things that are supposed to be get out mm-hmm. and they aren't mm-hmm. you know for for every small thing that lands like a, that uh, that was the most fascinating two hours i've ever spent in a motion picture uh, there is well i wish i had that time back you know <laughs> from some other things but the, you know and i'm responsible for doing versions of both those things i right. made i made some of the some of the most dismissible movies on the planet earth <laughs> that's the gig that's mm-hmm. the thing you don't know if you're if you're going to be doing it or not but there's still opportunities to take wax and there always will be those opportunities because there are people who want to belong to something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to get into that club is to find something on that screen, uh, whether in their home or, you know, God knows if they live, if they're Luddites uh, at the motion picture theater down yeah. the street. Yeah. Speaking of uh, the goddess Pellicula, I mm-hmm. do want to ask you one one last thing, which is uh, as people are listening to this, it's October. It is. It is October. It's Halloween month. Yes, it is. I must ask you about the... David S. Pumpkins, animated special. L- listen, the uh, finest reviews of my career. <laughs> <laughs> did did you did way. you did you know? We had no idea. No, I, look, that's all the writing. It's the guys who wrote that came up with something, and it just went to town. There you go. I will tell you this: I have in my car right now. I was requested by the staff at SNL to bring in the original costume <gasps> because they can't find costumes. <laughs> Uh, they were all sold you, out. So well, you kept it. Sometimes when you do the show, they'll like literally get a jacket for you for a. Uh, literally, they just said we. They get deals on this stuff, so mm-hmm. they'll have a jacket and they kind of fit it for you. Mm-hmm. And you say, "Can I take this? Looks good. Can I take this home?" So they said, "Yeah, yeah, it's fitted for you. You can go ahead. You can." It's one of the perks of doing the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the David S. Pumpkins costume, I said. Can I take that home? And they just said, in case. Just in case. Look, we didn't know it was going to be, you know, we didn't know anything was going to happen. It was a goofy sure. costume. Sure. So, but it's in my car. I got to take it back because we're shooting a little bit of a, of a preamble to it that will, that will be live. Amazing. I have a feeling David S. Pumpkins is going to, it's just going to be the thing that will define me now for an, for an awful long time. That will be your legacy. Well, I remember. Tom Hanks, well, who played <clears throat> David S. Pumpkins. There was, there's this, remember Saturday, Saturday Night Fever? Mm-hmm, um, sure. There was a character in there that was had working for some advertising executive uh, or something like that, and she met Lawrence Olivier mm-hmm. because Lawrence Olivier did commercials for Polaroid. Right. Remember that? And the guy said, I bet he gave you a camera, not even knowing that Lawrence Olivier was something beyond right. a Polaroid pitchman. Right. There's a generation of people who might remember Lawrence Olivier as the guy who sold Polaroid cameras, mm-hmm. just as they'll remember me as the guy who played David S. Pumpkins and nothing else. Which, by the way, I'll ride that till kingdom come. That is, <laughs> that is, that's the high country, man. And why not? It. And why not? Uh, so Tom Hanks' new book is called Uncommon Type. It is uh, short stories. You will find the moon. You will find families. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. 